and welcome to Fantastic Comic Fan. I am your host, R.T. Fleming, and it is my mission to help you find your next digital comic book pick from the golden age to now. I have been reading comic books for over 40 years and have never lost my passion for comic books. Something I try to pass on to old and new readers. Hello and welcome to episode 25 for April 25th, 2022. I recently read the Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan run of the Fantastic Four for the first time since it came out in the 1990s. Wow, it made for a fun ride and I had to talk about it for this podcast. Also, there's Superman Batman, who's teaming up, goes back to the golden ages of comics. They had their decade spanning team up, World's Finest, through the end of the Bronze Age. But the first team up didn't happen in the pages of World's Finest, but in, nah, that would be telling. You have to listen to this segment and find out all about their first team up. It makes for a great Golden Age read. And finally, when I say Norm Brayfogle, any true comic book fan, we call his Batman work under the various titles back in the 90s and into the 2000s. His art style remains distinctive as other great artists like Marsha Rogers, Jim Apparel, and Neil Adams. I'm doing a short profile on Brayfogle as we refresh it to tomorrow's podcast. Episode 26 drops tomorrow morning, and my featured guest is Chuck Satterley. Chuck recently launched a Kickstarter campaign for Bitter Souls. It's a series written by Chuck and drawn by Norm Brayfogle, who passed away in 2018. It is the largest work on one title Norm ever did outside of the Batman books. Again, it's dropping tomorrow, and it was such a fun having Chuck on the show. Now on today's episode. Oh, I'd love to hear from you. Please drop me a line, tell me what you like and don't like. A fantastic comic fan, all one word, at gmail.com. For decades, Superman and Batman teaming up was a staple in the comic books. Originally, they had a multi-decade run on a comic called World's Finest. And most people think their team-up started in that issue, but that's not so. Their first team-up actually occurred in Superman 76 from 1952. It was a cover by Wynne Mortimer. The story was written by Edward Hamilton with Kurt Swan providing pencils. The issue starts off with Batman and Robin in Gotham City. And Bruce Wayne getting ready to go off on a cruise. Flash over to Metropolis. And you have Lois and Clark also going on a cruise. The episode comes off as a love boat, 1950s Silver Age style. Because throughout the storyline, you have Batman and Superman, who actually at this time don't know each other's identity. And there's a point where a um, truck explodes. And the flames are all over the place. And Batman and Superman are both trying to figure out how to change without revealing the other one's identity. They change, but through a freak amount of luck, a light shines into the porthole of the ship. And they both realize, oh my gosh, you're Superman. And Bruce Wayne, you're Batman. Well, they decide they're going to talk about this later and figure out what to do. They put out the flames. And Lois is there, of course. Getting ready to cause the trouble as only the Silver Age Lotus could do. So they're on the ship 
and Lois is there. And now they've got to spend the rest of the story trying to make sure that whatever they turn into Superman, Batman, that Lois don't get wise. There's a funny little sequence where trying to keep Lois out of his hair, he wants to pretend he wants Batman to pretend that he's falling for Lois. But Lois overhears that and she goes, I'm going to teach that Superman a lesson. So she really does come on to Batman, which makes Superman just a teeny tiny bit jealous. You get some more hijinks, some more little action. And throughout it, Lois and Batman and Superman have a great Silver Age story. It's not very long, only about 10 pages. And I'm not going to go to the last page because I really want you to read this story. For a Batman Superman first team up, this is a great read. I really enjoyed it. I think you're going to also. I recently read a Fantastic Four run that I know I hadn't read since it came out decades ago. On the title, writer Tom DeFalco did a solid 60-issue, five-year run. He wrote issues 356 through 416 and stopped when the Onslaught storyline changed a big chunk of the Marvel mythos. It would be unfair, not to mention penciler Paul Ryan, who drew almost the entire run, stopping right before the Onslaught tie-in started. Ryan just didn't do the art chores, but was also listed as co-plotter and co-writer. His art throughout this run was stunning in detail, showing real characterization and helping bring the Fantastic into the Fab Four. I'm not sure how big of a seller Fantastic Four was back then, and the comic industry was structured differently than today. For one thing, the internet was not a thing, and fans would get their news through various newspapers and magazines, like Comic Buyer's Guide and Wizard. Often, I don't think sales in the long term matter. Comics often become classics and worthy runs long after they appear in publication. Look at Kirby's fourth world stuff that was none of the big sellers that DC had hoped would happen when Kirby jumped to DC. Yet, now, those series are not only seen as classics, but as huge parts of the DC mythos today. One of the things I find discouraging about comics today is that events don't matter. They are self-contained things that seldom spill into the greater scheme of other comics and events. Often, when they do spill over, it changes very little. Heck, now X-Men can't even die for long stretches anymore. As a result, I find a lot of events as non-events that are boring because the stakes and consequences are low. Looking back at the DeFalco and Ryan, big things were always happening in the Fantastic Four comic book. I find myself reading past more issues quicker than I would wanted to just to see what would have happened next. The run was not a happy time for the Fantastic Four either. So many big things happened that didn't necessarily get fixed within a couple of issues. Even when a problem was solved, it seldom resulted in a good resolution. Yet the book wasn't a downer, but the exact opposite. I, find my, I found myself rooting for the team and hoping for the best of outcomes. As I said, things mattered, and this creative team took risks. Unfortunately, instead of writing a particular narrative, I'm not even sure they paid much attention to the fans at this time. Instead of writing a particular narrative to appeal to fans and granting fan wishes, they did what they wanted to do come hell or high water. Though my memory is a bit fuzzy, I do remember being irked by some of the choices as a big Fantastic Four fan. However, after rereading the run, after all these years, I see it from a new perspective. Wow. This was a great run.
I cannot possibly list all the wild moments, nor would I, because that would rob you the joy of a great run of Fantastic Four. I will talk about one particular event that went on for many issues. Spoiler here, I'm talking about Fantastic Four 381. The issue ends with the death of Dr. Doom and Reed. Now, we all know death is not a forever thing, especially when it comes to Marvel. The death of Reed Richards wasn't a stunt or done just to hide the book. He stayed dead for the better part of two years. It wasn't a plot point, but a way to take characters in new directions, particularly Sue, who stepped in and became the group leader. DeFalco took the Fantastic Four right to the steps of Onslaught, as I said. However, in those 60 issues, you get great stuff. Too bad I couldn't see it back then. Nor will we ever know where DeFalco and Ryan would have taken it if not for Onslaught. Again, I'm not sure what the sales number were during that run of Fantastic Four, nor would I necessarily point to DeFalco and Ryan for less than seller sales. But at this time, the industry was kind of crazy, in my opinion. It seemed that the publishers were aiming at speculators, not the comic fan. I did have a problem putting the spotlight together on DeFalco and Ryan's run on the Fab Four. There's so much more to say. I didn't even have time to talk about the sporting cast or some of the great stories throughout the run. Please, do yourself a favor. Check out their run. I think you'll see it as a fun roller coaster of a ride. I got lucky with my introduction to the Batman Mythos. It was Steve Englehart and Walter Simonson's Detective Comics 469 from 1977. I was 10, and that cover of Dr. Phosphorus being the tire of Batman hooked me for life. However, it would be many years later when the Dark Knight became one of my favorite characters. A lot of that had to do with Norm Brayfogle. His first issue of drawing Batman was Detective Comics 579 in 1987, and you could see right from the start that he brought something unique to the Batman mythos. His characters they were almost fluid-like, and his distinctive style told you it was Barry Fogel doing the pencils. But of course, long-term fans know exactly what I'm talking about, was his iconic portrayal of the Dark Knight. Newer fans, they owe it to themselves to check out his Batman work. I'm not one for regrets or wishing I'd done things differently in life, but obviously there are a few exceptions. For example, I wish I'd had an appreciation for creators sooner than later as a comic book fan. But unfortunately, I'd go for the eye candy of the stories and art for too many years. One of the reasons I started the podcast and associated social media was to spotlight creators new and old that I think deserve more attention especially among newer friends. Norm Brayfogel is one of those creators. Unfortunately, Norm passed away in 2018 at the age of 58 from heart failure. Before that, he had a stroke in 2014, which caused paralysis on his left side. Norm was left-handed, and the stroke ended his artistic career. The comic industry lost a fantastic and iconic creator who will continue to inspire new generations of fans and creators. My brief spotlight on Brayfogle is my way of honoring someone I never had the opportunity to do in person. Of course, his list of accomplishments go far beyond this podcast, but I still want to touch on a few highlights. Over in the Batman mythos, he co-created such characters as Jeremiah Arkham, Ratcatcher, and the Ventriloquist. He did a run on Detective Comics and then moved over to Batman. Through various titles and projects, his run on Batman, a 
approximately spanned 1987 through the late 90s. Before landing at DC, he did work at now-defunct publisher First Comics. Let me pause for a second and say that First put out some fantastic comic in the early years of the direct market. One day I hope more of the publisher's comics find a new way, new homes. At first, he did a backup strip in American Flag, and later his first monthly book was Whisper. Some fans might be surprised to know they did work for Archie. In 2008, he began drawing for Archie Loves Betty and Archie Loves Veronica. It became a popular What If Archie-centric comic series. Again, I am only briefly touching on all the works and contributions he made within the industry. The Archie Loves series and all Archie comics are available to borrow via Comicsology Unlimited. Also, a good chunk of Norm's work can be borrowed via Hoopla. Finally, old fans should take a trip to the past and read those old Batman runs because they still hold up after all these years. In a way, I envy those new fans who are 100% clueless about Norm Brayfogle. They get the chance and opportunity to be amazed by a legend for the first time. We should all be so lucky. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Again, I would love to hear from you at fantasticcomicfan at gmail.com. Remember, new episodes every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope to see you next time.